Hello there, Waffle Easters. Hello, you're listening to Copyright Waffle, the podcast that brings you a nice cup of copyright enlightenment with a slice of cake. My name's Chris Morrison. And my name's Jane Secker. We're a couple of self-confessed copyright geeks and we run the website copyrightliteracy.org. We're on a mission to make learning about copyright fun, engaging and empowering. And we're your hosts for Copyright Waffle, an archive of amazing chats with copyright experts and interesting people whose lives have been touched by copyright. And our guest today on the podcast is none other than Corey Doctorow, an absolute copyright legend. He's a science fiction author, but also a journalist, blogger and digital rights activist. And it was a fascinating conversation. So it came about because you were having some interactions with Corey online earlier this year, 2022, weren't you? Yes. So I was looking at Twitter and noticed that Corey was tweeting a bit about uh, the picture agency, Pixie. He'd recently written a letter to their CEO based on the kind of activities that they got up to. I think they sent him a fee for using an image on his blog, which was Creative Commons licensed. Obviously, Corey knows a lot about Creative Commons licensing, so he'd sent quite a robust response to them because they've kind of known for for doing this sort of activity where they're sending license fees to people. If you slightly misattribute an image from Creative Commons... It's a practice we had picked up in the university sector, hadn't we? So Yeah, yeah. So we, we talked to Corey about that towards mm. the end of the conversation and it was really great to get his insights on that, as well as hearing about his story, about how he got involved in copyright, how he, he became involved in the open licensing and, and op- open culture movement. Yeah. And then we saw him and his co-author Rebecca Giblin recently, didn't we, do a presentation about their latest book, Choke Point Capitalism. Yes, so Corey was talking about that when we interviewed him. The book's actually now out. And Rebecca Giblin, we met her in London a couple of years ago when she was doing work for the Authors Alliance on ebook licensing and some of the pricing practices. So it was great to find out that they were writing this book together and it's now available. It is, absolutely. So again, more about that in the podcast. Yeah. Uh, but before we give too much of a rundown on everything we spoke about, we like musical interludes, don't we? We do, yes. And so does Corey. And so does Corey. So we thought we'd try and put the feelers out and see if there was any established musical artists that would be interested in commemorating the conversation we had with him. Yes. We know that Corey's a big fan of David Byrne and Talking Heads. Unfortunately, David wasn't available. No. But you've been been lucky. You've been lucky, I think. You've found... I think, well, we were a bit worried that we weren't going to get anything. And then suddenly, just appearing in our inboxes, was a, a fully formed homage to our conversation by what appears to be the legendary electronic German group Kraftwerk. It's it's quite something. It is quite well, something. Sh- should we have a listen? Let's have a what, listen. Yeah, let's have a listen. See see what we think. Mr. Corey Doctorow, he 
joined us on our podcast show. He told us how he changed his mind from being DRM inclined. Mr. Cory Doctorow, the way he talks is not so slow. His book with Rebecca Giblin. So, it really does sound like prime era craftwork, uh, which it is does. very strange, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, we, we, we wanted to have a chat to Corey to see, to see what he thought of it. He's, he's very busy. He's in full promotional mode at the moment. But we were very pleased to have got his initial response to it. Yeah. So, shall we, shall we go over to Corey and see what his thoughts are on, on the song, Mr. Corey Dr. Rowe? Let's do it. Uh, this is Corey Dr. Rowe. I, I just wanted to say how honoured I am and humbled I am by this Krautrock tribute from Kraftwerk. Um, it is an honor to know that my work has carried so far into Germany and um, that my German comrades uh, over there are so uh, excited by it and, and have such a comprehensive view of it. Um, thank you very much. Vielen uh, Dank. Sehr gut. Wunderschön. Wiedersehen. Tschüss. Okay, well, feeling dunk indeed. So, shall we, without further ado, go over to the conversation we had with Corey earlier this year, May 2022, and we pick up the conversation after he's just heard our absolutely original, written by me, theme tune, Copyright Waffle, and pick it up from there. Let's get on with the show. Copyright Waffle. All right. (laughs) That's very funny. You You are justifiably proud of that. (laughs) (laughs) thanks very much um well yeah Corey, where we wanted to start was a question we know you've been asked before and you have spoken about eloquently but we thought can you start us off with your history in copyright and uh also your your damascene conversion to to openness yeah as an author and how did that come about well you know i i my my origin is as a writer and so I learned what I learned about copyright by um, getting advice from other writers, reading books about how to become a writer and so on. And, you know, I think the great sea change with uh, that the Internet brought about in copyright was to really move copyright from uh, flawed and sometimes insufficient framework for regulating the industrial supply chain of the entertainment industry and into a uh, a regulation that reaches into the relationship between creators and their audiences and also into non-copyright realms. Like uh, there's, the, I, I won't go into the story at great length, but you know, I once found someone impersonating me on a dating site and luring strangers to dates that they didn't show up for. And I contacted the dating site and they said, Oh, well, the only mechanism we have for dealing with this is uh, since they used your photo, you can file a copyright takedown and we'll take down their profile and it's just, you know, we are now like trying to make copyright do the job of like 
dealing with impersonation on dating sites, which is really, you know, as someone who actually works in the entertainment industry and wants a fit for purpose regulation, I would really strongly prefer that we also not try to make it something that we can use to make sure people on dating sites aren't aren't impersonating others, because I think that would, will get in the way of it. So, you know, when you ask writers, especially in the 80s, when you asked writers about copyright, the thing that they would tell you is that the more copyright you retain and the more closely you control your copyright, the harder it will be for other actors in the supply chain to exploit you. The more groceries you'll put on the table. I think as a, a, to a first approximation, that's true. The thing is that it's completely uh, uh, inappropriate advice for your relations with your audience. In the sense that like, if I stop a child from writing fanfic of my novels, it really has no bearing at all on whether or not I put groceries on the table. But, you know, writers have got to learn a lot of things in order to be writers. And the idea that we'll also become experts on copyright and understand a nuanced position on it, especially when you don't really need to. All you need is this one rule of thumb. Don't give up copyright if you don't have to. I think it's 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 a reasonable thing that writers would have this very cursory, high-level understanding of copyright instead of a tech, detailed technical one. So along comes the internet, and, you know, I just had this relatively simplistic view that creators should just control more of their copyright as a labor matter. And, you know, my... my um, Sympathies lay with with labor struggles. My my folks are active in union politics and labor politics, and I've been active in labor politics. And I I said, you know, if there's a, a protection for workers that prevents wage theft and other harms to workers, then we should enhance it and expand it. And so I was involved in a startup that was doing peer to peer software, which is obviously like at the beating heart of the copyright debate in the early 2000s. And um, we had this problem, which was that Napster's uh, limited partners, the, the pension funds and other, uh, you know, sort of further up the chain investors, not their venture capitalists, but the, the people who gave their venture capitalists money were sued by the record industry. And our venture capitalists investors went bananas because they thought they would be sued if we uh, did anything that attracted uh, negative legal consequences. And so they wanted a bunch of legal assurances. And I ended up getting in touch with the Electronic Frontier Foundation uh, because a bunch of our programmers were from the Cult of the Dead Cow, this wonderful hacker group that had been involved in all kinds of early cyber freedom battles where the EFF had defended them. And so I ended up being quite good friends with uh, the woman who's now the executive director, but was then one of EFF's lawyers, Cindy Cohen, and with Fred Von Lohman, who was then a lawyer at Morrison Forrester, but shortly joined EFF and ran its IP practice for many years. And we ended up on the bill at a couple of big conferences on P2P. So the first one was in Hong Kong. And we got on the plane to Hong Kong. It was a you know, 15-hour flight or whatever from San Francisco. And Fred and I started talking about copyright. And Cindy thought we were bonkers because she's a, a free speech and First Amendment lawyer. And for her, the very idea that there is a federal law that says some people aren't allowed to say some things just doesn't compute. Like it always felt like like something really bananas. And she was just like, you people are crazy. I don't know what you're arguing about. This whole thing is, is bananas. It doesn't fit in the American constitutional tradition, blah, blah, blah. But Fred, you know, was, was th this was his bread and butter. And he really understood. And he really understood, like Cindy, he really understood both the tech law, but also 
the ins and outs of copyright law. He ended up arguing Grokster for us at the Supreme Court, or not at the Supreme Court, in the appellate division, and winning. We lost at the Supreme Court, unfortunately. I think in part because Fred didn't argue it. So Fred and I argued for 15 hours solid in the sky. And when we landed, I was still skeptical. And then we were in Hong Kong for, I don't know, three, four days, and the conference was a couple of days. And every night we went out and we walked around. We went to the Temple Street Night Market and so on. And during the days, you know, after the conference, we walked around. We just walked for four solid days around Hong Kong. And Fred and I argued the whole time. About copyright. About copyright. And by the time I got back on the plane to San Francisco, I had doubts. (laughs) And then we came to another conference uh, just off Hyde Park in London, and uh, we oh no, it was just off the Serpentine, and and so we once again flew over, and we once again walked around, and we went to Camden, and we went to tea at Fortman Masons, and we went you know all over town and did all the touristy things. Cindy had gone to law school in the city for a while, and we went around you know the chamber she'd been in, and so on. And the whole time, we argued about copyright. And then by the time I got back to to San Francisco, I was a convert. And within a year, I was working at the Electronic Frontier Foundation for complex reasons, but that was one of them. And so that was kind of my experience. And, you know, it was interesting because the the point at which I'd made the decision to work for EFF, I was at a crossroads where I could stay with the startup that I was at, which at the time had been targeted for acquisition by Microsoft, who were proposing to make me a DRM evangelist. And I had a counteroffer from the Electronic Frontier Foundation for substantially less money. <laughs> and uh, it would have involved, uh, you know, working for EFF involved staying in San Francisco and then eventually moving to London to be the European director. And working for Microsoft would have involved moving back to Toronto and then eventually probably ending up in Seattle. And I went back to Toronto for the weekend to look at apartments. And I got back and made the call, literally called my my future boss and Sherry Steele was then the executive director and said yeah I'm coming I'm gonna not gonna take the job I'm gonna quit the startup I co-founded and I'm gonna come work at EFF and work on copyright liberalization and other issues related to human rights and the internet and that's kind of my story 20 years ago last month that all happened that's amazing and that's it's also 20 years isn't it since uh the creative commons movement started the licenses first came out I was looking at um something you'd written about the 16th of May um, 2002 on your blog and kind of thinking where I was, but that was the point you were at EFF, presumably. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, I um, moved to London originally to work three-quarter time for for EFF and one-quarter time for Creative Commons, specifically on the Creative Archive that was at the time in the offing at the BBC, which unfortunately was shelved in favor of iPlayer, but the original idea was to give the license-paying public an archive of all the materials that their license fees had paid for to freely reuse and to to join up that license with other public use licenses from Wellcome and the British Library and BAFTA and other other British institutions to create a, a, the raw material for a remix culture in the United Kingdom, which could then be reciprocally joined with other s- territories that had large publicly funded institutions, you know, mostly European countries, but also countries in the Middle East and so on, so that any country that was willing to add its repository to uh, a commons could get access to the other repositories in the commons. Uh, and that all fell apart when mm. the BBC pivoted to replacing the license fee which 
now seems like it's on the verge of actually happening by um, selling services to Americans, uh, which is basically what the what the plan seems to be now. It, to you know, to to whatever extent the BBC can become a Netflix for Americans, some of the exhaust revenues from that will fund public service in the United Kingdom. I think it's a horrible, impoverished vision. And, and you know, one of the great failures in my career that we didn't get there was circumstances beyond my control. But for a mm. moment, we really been, looked like we'd get something. Yeah. It really would have yeah. been. would have been yeah. world-changing. I guess these are, I mean, these are moments in history. I'm just thinking back to where I was at that time. I was working um, in the music industry around that time in the PRS, the Collecting Society. And there were all those stories about peer-to-peer and what it meant and the Creative Commons coming through. And, and at that time, I was in. I, I wasn't in the world I'm in now. I wasn't in libraries or, or education or research. And there was a very, very strong message coming through that these Creative Commons licenses were a bad thing. They were right. selling out all the value underneath all of the hard-fought gains that the creative sector had got for authors and for composers and for artists. So, Corey, you're you're clearly well and truly in the open camp. You have now spent 20 years in that world, being an activist and, and, and arguing those points. I mean, have your views changed in that intervening time or has just the world changed and things around it that have, have further given you nuance on, on, on your views? Yeah, what I would say is that I've zoomed out since then. It's not that my views have changed. It's just that the the part the significance of it has become clearer the wider significance of these issues has become clearer like it was pretty clear to me back in the old days that uh the brittleness of a notice and takedown regime without due process was not great for for free expression but today it's clear that notice and takedown has these really far-ranging implications that you know, I don't think I grasp the the nuance of back then. It's it's you know, as someone who writes critical journalism often about powerful people, there are many times where I get threatened legally. I got a legal threat yesterday from a you know billionaire running a giant finance company who claims I libeled him, and who, in the most cowardly fashion, was picking on me on Twitter even as his lawyer was sending me letters threatening to sue me so that uh, I wouldn't reply, so that he could just have the last word in this Twitter argument. It was really shocking yeah um but you know there have been lots of other times where my critical work rather than bothering with uh with bogus libel threats the people who didn't like what was being said about them just made bogus copyright complaints Mm. and that is a very rapid and effective way to remove things from the internet and you know as notice and takedown has morphed into things like um uh, uh, automatic measures, right? Copyright filters and upload filters. You see police officers blaring pop music in their encounters with the public because they believe that that will prevent those videos from being posted on the internet because it'll be they'll be automatically taken down. And you know, lots of other kind of maybe orthogonal consequences like um, the uh, the learned conferences where they stream eight hours to YouTube and during the lunch break, the hall that they're in just turns on some background music that they have a site license for, but that YouTube doesn't have a streaming license for. And YouTube uh, finesses that by automatically removing all the audio, the only recording of an eight hour learned symposium. And then, you know, there's the, I think, foreseeable consequences, like the fact that if you're a classical music uh, performer, Sony will steal all your wages because they will demonetize all of your performances 
by uploading their own massive classical music trove and automatically having it match all of those home performances, which are largely indistinguishable, at least to software, from their recorded performances. And they get all the advertising money from your recordings. Uh, and then, you know, the, the stuff that anyone who understands how to do red team exercises and security research would have predicted, like the blackmailers who will file bogus copy strikes on working creators' videos and then only remove them if the creators agree to pay a ransom. Uh, and, and, you know, they threaten the creator's careers because if you get turfed off YouTube because it has a monopoly over streaming video, then you don't have a, a career anymore as a streamer. And, you know, all of those things, I think, were, were are sort of in the realm of copyright and that I'd understood but not as, as thoroughly as I understand them today. But, you know, I think much more pernicious in the DRM fight, you know, I was mostly focused on consumer rights. That's still a big issue. But, you know, DRM right now is a massive impediment to ad adaptation for people with disabilities. You know, we, we actually had this fight at the World Wide Web Consortium when they, in a very shameful move, agreed to add DRM to web standards for browsers. And we asked them to get their members to covenant not to attack interoperators who uh, reverse engineered and modified the DRM to add accessibility features and they said that they wouldn't do it that if you had a disability and it was and and the ad adaptive elements that were in the standard didn't suit you then you're just shit out of luck you can just go beg the companies to, to add the feature but you can't add the feature and you can't ask someone to add that feature for you and then, you know, the, the real metastasis of DRM is into the world of embedded systems, which is to say the world, right? Everything in our world now has embedded systems in it, uh, whether it's a tractor or a toaster. And because adding a technical protection measure triggers anti-circumvention protection, you can, you can uh, fence out your rivals. You can say to your critics, your competitors, and your customers that they now have a legal obligation to arrange their affairs to the benefit of your shareholders because to do otherwise with the device requires a, an act of circumvention and that carries a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine for a first offense under Section 12.1 of the DMCA and similarly stiff penalties under the adaptations of Article 6 of the European Copyright Directive. And, you know, now we, we have this bizarre regime where you can't fix your car and you can't fix your phone, you can't fix your tractor, and cars can be remotely bricked and parking garages in New Jersey with 200 cars in them are getting remotely bricked by the company that provides the firmware because they have a billing dispute with the people who operate the multi-level parking garage and then all the cars are held hostage until someone can get them out and Medtronic stops technicians from repairing their their uh, workhorse uh, ventilators uh, because they want to collect a $200 fee every time there's a repair so they use DRM to make it so that when new parts are added to the device to replace a defective part it won't work until you type an unlock code and producing a device that that simulates that unlock code as an act of circumvention and can send you to prison. So we have this incredible brittleness in a world characterized by emergency. You know, we have, and, and oftentimes it's spun as a feel-good story, like Elon Musk just pressed the button that allows people who are fleeing a hurricane in Florida to unlock the additional range in their Teslas that they would otherwise have to pay extra for. Well, sure, but isn't it a little grotesque that you have a battery capable of making you outrun a hurricane and you have to depend on an erratic billionaire to decide that you get to use it 
or you know russian soldiers steal five million dollars worth of tractors from a ukrainian dealership and relocate them to chechnya and the dealership bricks them that's a great story unless the russian hackers take control of a ukrainian tractor dealership and brick all the tractors in ukraine in which case we're going to be a lot less happy you know as a science fiction writer I was always very skeptical when, uh, you know, there would be a, a scene on a starship bridge where someone would like slip and their elbow would hit the self-destruct button. And, you know, this voice would start counting down, inevitably a British voice, you know, self-destruct <laughs> sequence initiated, self-destruction in 10, 9. And I would think, you know, I'm no aerospace engineer, but wouldn't this be a better rocket ship if it wasn't designed to explode? Uh, you know, we have des we've put self-destruct switches in all of these devices because anti-circumvention and copyright uh, allows firms to leverage that into far-reaching control over the conduct over third parties in a way that is extremely beneficial to their bottom line and that is an absolute moral hazard. And, you know, seen in that light, worrying that you can't rip your DVDs seems pretty small potatoes. You know, Absolutely. it's that we really are facing much graver consequences. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And for anyone who ever doubted that understanding copyright and advocating for open wasn't important, I think you pretty much convinced them there. I mean, it's quite a dystopian world, really, mm -hmm. in, in many ways. It's been created. Hasn't well, it? What it brings to my mind is that there's always been this sort of uneasy relationship between copyright as a way of regulating creative activity and the industrial type of, and I'm wary of using the term IP in front of you because that's a contested thing intellectual property does it really exist do we want to use that term mm -hmm. but we're talking about design rights and we're talking about the other things that mm -hmm. that um, industrial corporate elements can use to protect I mean they're, they're typically shorter length that they, they work in a particular way but when everything is about code and because the decision was made back in the 70s and 80s to, to protect code with copyright then that's, I mean, that's the key reason why these things are happening, that that's what the, 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 the path was paved at that point. Yeah. And, you know, apropos intellectual property, you know, I'm familiar with the debate, but I had um, in the summer 2020 during lockdown, I actually had a, a, a kind of minor revelation about that term. You know, the debate about it is that it's so imprecise that, you know, patent has a different rubric from copyright and the, the two are different from design rights and other neighboring rights or sui generis rights like broadcast rights or whatever. And what I realized is that in the industrial context, intellectual property actually is a very precise meaning. It, it's not meant to deliberately confuse you about whether we're talking about patents or copyrights or trademarks or whatever. What it comes down to when someone at a, in a firm says to their colleagues what ip rights do we have in this or what ip rights can we hook to this what they mean is what mechanisms can we lean on from law to allow us to reach beyond the boundaries of the firm and assert control over the conduct of our competitors and our critics and our customers right that that is the actual like that is the the real definition of of what IP means like when someone says uh, I need IP or I've got IP what they mean is I have a legal mechanism to reach outside of the walls of the firm and tell you what to do when you try to criticize me use my products or compete with my products. 
I mean, yes, that makes absolute sense. Now you explain it in that way. Mm. But I think that that conversation about property and all the criticisms you have of the use of the word property, well, it's not their property in the same way that it's a patch of land that they can go and visit and build sure. it. Like you say, it's a way of actually having control over other people's behaviour. It's about it's power, big, isn't it? It's a big threat. We've been that, talking yeah. a lot about that, about the the way that copyright is actually um, a lot of, a lot like really tied up with power. It, absolutely. And the issue here is it's supposed to help the author, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, can I just pick up actually uh, at that mm-hmm. point a kind of interesting area that we think about quite a bit. So you chatted in the, the Walled Culture podcast about publishing and you were talking a lot about trade publishing and the big four publishers in, that sort of dominate and the power of Amazon. We're really interested in what's going on in the scholarly publishing area. And we just mm-hmm. wondered whether you see that as being something really quite different. The idea of being an author when you're writing fiction, non-fiction, you're making a living out of it, can be quite different to our world where academics are writing, essentially, to disseminate their research, to get promoted for, for publication. And they're not so much like the kind of lone author. But... What do you think to what's kind of going on in this scholarly communication landscape and how that might compare with what's happening in trade publishing? Yeah, well, it's a very different rubric, right? So, you you know, there are are different ways to talk about why we have copyright. Obviously, there's like a Anglo slash continental split, uh, you know, uh, Victor Hugo versus the stationers kind of split here. But everyone kind of agrees that the the reason to have copyright is to set up some incentives by creating an exclusive rights regime and then there's some stuff around the edges like moral rights but but the incentives are are like front and center whether you're talking about the progress clause or the you know the UN declaration of human rights or or the Berne convention and the incentive to an author is it's an easier story to put together there's, there's a little bit of indirection there but it's like I, as the author, need to be able to incentivize the publisher to pay me for my work rather than just taking it. And the publisher's incentive is that if I have an exclusive right that they can use to stop others from taking the work, then they will pay me to make the work and and then publish the work. And then they will use that exclusive right that I've sold them as a stick to beat others who might want to take the work without without paying for it so that they can extract revenue to make up for the what, what we've given. And there's a the kind of simplistic next stage of that is the more copyright I have to sell, the more the publisher gets to hit other people with a stick. The more they get to hit other people with a stick, the more ways they can think of making money. And the more ways they can think of making money, the more money I can command from them. And that's a it's it's that there are some real problems with that, not least that in a very monopolized world, it doesn't really matter how much copyright the author has because the publisher doesn't have to give the author any more because there aren't, you know, there's four major trade publishers. So what's the author going to do? Go somewhere else? There's nowhere else to go or, or nowhere viable to go, especially when there's, you know, one brick and mortar bookstore, one electronic bookstore. In the U.S., we have one distributor left and so on. With uh, academic publishing is very different. So as you say, the incentive for academic publishing has nothing to do with how much money Elsevier makes, right? You you publish because the publishing gives you some prestige. It's a an indicator to the people who sit on your tenure committee 
that you are doing good scholarship. Maybe there's also some intangible good feelings about being in a major journal. But, but you know, for the most part, like the, the way that an academic writing ends up translating into a bag of groceries in the academic's kitchen table has nothing to do with how much money Elsevier makes. It, it, has, it has to do with whether or not an academic institution finds their publication record persuasive as a mechanism for either giving them a grant or tenure or whatever. And so then you get into this very weird thing where it's like, well, but Elsevier wouldn't do whatever it's done to make its journals prestigious enough to get academics grants and tenure if they don't have a big stick to hit other publishers with. And that's a much harder case to make. It just doesn't doesn't really hold together, right? There's some pretty good empirical work on what the major academic publishers do between the pre-pub and the, the actual publication. It's actually pretty straightforward to do now that we have computational linguistics because, like, you can just feed texts into computers and find out what's changed. They don't really edit papers, right? The, the actual editing process is, is mostly done prior to submission or through submission but with other volunteers. And so the, the money that the um, academic presses are able to extract really doesn't make the papers better. And so there's a pretty good argument that like the thing that academic publishers do, scholarly publishers do, doesn't cost a lot of money. That mostly what it does is it returns a, a lot to shareholders. And you know, that's there's like, again, some empirical ways to validate that because you can look at their total revenues and then their total overheads and the amount that they return to shareholders. And you can just see that the surplus capital is very high. Right, that, that like they are not a low margin industry. It's a bit like when we were having the Obamacare debate here in the United States and they were saying, well, insurers won't insure high risk people because it's a losing bet for them and they're such a marginal business. And again, like all you needed to do was look at their quarterly returns to see that they weren't a low margin business. That the reason that they were choosing not to insure high risk people wasn't because it would cost them too much money and make them unviable, it's because it would cost them money that they would otherwise prefer to return to their shareholders. So there's just not a good argument, like as a as a as an empirical matter, that if we make Elsevier richer, they will make academic publishing better. And then the corollary of that is that all the tactics that Elsevier uses, and I'm using Elsevier as a stand-in for Springer and all the rest of them, all the tactics that they use to extract maximum revenue cut against scholarship's purpose right the thing about scholarship is it comes out of the enlightenment and you know the enlightenment's kind of a mixed bag i just read the the graber and wengrove book about uh, the indigenous critique and its relationship to enlightenment and so on but you know the thumbnail sketch of the enlightenment is you have alchemy and alchemy is just like science but it doesn't tell anyone what it thinks it knows and so every alchemist discovers for themselves in the hardest way possible that you shouldn't drink mercury. And alchemy produces nothing for 500 years. And then alchemy finally turns lead into gold. The lead that they turn is superstition and the gold is science. And the crucible is disclosure. It's, it's letting your enemies tell you you are an idiot for missing something obvious. So, you know, it's not just not just peer review of the people who want you to succeed, but peer review among the people who dream of the day you fail. And so that, that adversarial relationship gives rise to a rigor and discipline and scholarship that produces science, the Enlightenment, and, and what we have today. And, you know, frankly, 
if you don't expose your ideas to everyone who might think that you're full of shit and, and isn't dreaming of the day you fail, you're not doing science, you're doing alchemy. Yeah. And, yeah. and so we have created this system where copyrights are transferred with no compensation, no material compensation from creators to research and scholarly journals. Those journals then reduce the ability of researchers to fund their research by extracting monopoly rents from their research institutions for subscriptions to the journals in which their own research appears. And they retard the progress of scholarship by restricting access to the, the scholarship such that the people who might have key insights that will improve the scholarship through this, you know, like... Uh, dialectical process this adversarial process are 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 excluded and so you know all of that plus the fundamental equitable justice issues of people in the global south being the people that we go and test medicine on and the people that we you know whose raw materials we extract to produce the fruits of our high-tech industry but whose own scholars are not able to access the research that leads to that or that comes from it um, all of that together makes this really a travesty and it kind of shows you why when you're when you're thinking begins and ends a copyright instead of thinking about the wider power relations labor law antitrust and so on you just can't solve the problem you i, I call it you know driving with the windscreen wipers you know we we tore the steering wheel out of corporate behavior 40 years ago when margaret thatcher and ronald reagan dismantled antitrust law and you know that has led to these incredibly harmful outcomes for scholars for creators and so on and all we've got is the windscreen wipers and we spend all of our time arguing about what speed the windscreen wipers should go at to adequately steer the car and there comes a point where like if you want to curb anti-competitive conduct by publishers be they scholarly or trade copyright law will not solve those issues right they just they it's just poorly suited to it and indeed it might exacerbate it because as we see with scholarly publishing and with trade publishing that under conditions of monopoly the publishers are like bullies at the school gate who take your kids lunch money every morning and if you give your kid more lunch money if you expand copyright the bullies just take that too and they use that to make it harder for your kid to find another route into the school, you know, to their audience, to scholars, to other people, because they now have the surplus capital they can generate from the copyrights they've appropriated from you. And so it becomes a kind of airtight bubble. And the more copyright you give creators, the more copyright is expropriated by the gatekeeper. And the more they are able to abuse the creators and other players in the system. And at a certain point, you, you have to say, well, copyright has its place, but it's not going to solve this problem. This, this is a problem we have to solve by going back to our foundations of corporate power. And that is something we achieve through labor law and antitrust. Because you've spoken about publishers and, and again on the World Culture podcast and, and, and other times as well, that publishers and trade publishers moving on to that area of the industry, they do much more than print stuff or, <laughs> or make ebooks. And you've talked about how publishers are there to connect an author with an audience and they do that but there is a distinction there in what you've just described about scholarly publishing and trade publishing they're doing different jobs that's true that's true i mean i was quoting my editor patrick nielsen hayden who says a publisher's job is to make something public 
right? It's, it's to connect an audience and a work and to take whatever steps are necessary to make that work palatable to the audience or attractive to them and compelling. And so publishers do a wide variety of tasks of which printing might be one, but is not necessarily the big one. And these days is increasingly simple to do. I have a background in pre-press, you know, printing is not rocket science. But, you know, I would say actually that academic publishers do things to make works public. They're just different things. There's a reason that Elsevier journals are in the library at your academic institution and journals from smaller publishers might not be. And it has to do with making the work public. Now, they may be making the work public in ways that we disfavor, right? Like they may be making the work public by creating um, bundle deals for libraries that absorb 100% of their discretionary budget so they can't afford to subscribe to smaller independent journals, right? That is, that is one of the ways they make it public. But from the perspective of the academic whose work is in the journal, there is a, an immediate short-term benefit to that, which is that that journal then shows up in every academic library because it's part of an anti-competitive bundle. But that is making the work public. I mean, for whatever it's worth, just to give them their due, that is making the work public. But what I think we see in our world often, de demonization, in fact, not just in our world, in the copyright wars, such as they are, it's the, the polarization which camp you're in you see the other the other camp as being the one that are causing the problems is that inevitable is it part of the problem you've talked about how it's copyright it's actually part of a wider thing around monopolization and yeah. and overreach of corporate power so how does that work in the in the sort of polarization context so my colleague rebecca giblin who's a great australian copyright expert she says I'm not allowed to call her a great Australian copyright lawyer because she hasn't practiced in a while, but she is a copyright expert, nevertheless. Uh, she and I have just written a book that's coming out in the autumn from Beacon called Choke Point Capitalism. And we're basically res re responding to this framework that you've just alluded to, the idea that if you are a publishing worker or a writer or a tech worker or an audience member, that you should pick a champion from the monopolies that control those different areas, right? Pick a giant who will enter the commerce battlefield on your behalf and wrestle with the other giants to see which one will control the industry. And that when they're done, your champion might drop some crumbs that you can get and that they will favor you with more crumbs. And that is, I think, a very impoverished way to think about the agency of all of the actors in that chain. And, you know, this really came to the fore during the copyright directive debate of 2018 and 2019 in Europe, where Article 13, which is now Article 17, proposed that all forums for user speech, for online expression, should have upload filters that look for and block works that are identified as copyrighted. And, you know, there are a lot of problems with this and there are problems that affect creators and there are problems that affect the audience and there are problems that affect third parties who are unrelated whose speech might be blocked. You know, as I said, you know, someone who's at a protest where loud music is playing might find that the effect of their protest doesn't go any further because social media is blocking it and they're neither the audience nor the creators. They're just innocent bystanders here. But there was this really unfortunate polarization of the debate where you had people who worked for creators' lobbies briefing on behalf of the large corporations, and you had people who were on the internet rights side, in some cases, 
briefing for the large corporations as well, more often being accused of briefing for the corporations, of, of being corporate shills. And the reality is that neither of those highly concentrated sectors are our friends. And the share of the monopolized supply chain that accrues to one party within it is almost entirely unrelated to how much money a creator gets, right? It's, you know, if, if Google has to give all of its money to newspapers, they're not going to hire more journalists. They're just going to send that money to their shareholders because the newspapers are mostly, in the U.S. anyways, the newspapers are mostly owned by hedge funds. For whatever problems and, and there were with this, they are not patrician families uh, in local towns who have a sense of duty and fund a local newspaper where they send some kid to the town hall meeting every week to write down the minutes and publish it in the newspaper between the sports scores and the ads for white goods. They're just they're just hedge funds and they're doing what hedge funds do. They're they're, you know, a plague of locusts destroying the world. And so what we argue for in Showpoint Capitalism, well, what we do is we first lay out how monopoly arrived and how monopsony, where you just have a small number of buyers for labor, arrived in in the entertainment industry and how it's part of a wider monopolization trend that affects every sector. It's, you know, it's in alcohol and spirits, it's in eyeglasses and it's in finance and it's in cheerleader uniforms and it's in professional wrestling and it's in glass bottles there's one glass bottle manufacturer in the u.s of any size and it was one of the big problems with vaccine supply chains was just nobody could make glass bottles like there you know we just have all these these crazy monopolized sectors and all of them are squeezing their workers and all of them are squeezing their customers and so long as we just think about this as the battle between the champions with us being relegated to the sidelines to just uh, cheer on our chosen giant, we will get nothing. We have to advocate for the abolition of giants. That that's, that's the only way that we change the, the deal for creators and their audiences or for workers and their customers. You know, a, a way to think about this in the U.S. context is that when pharma first monopolized, which is an IP story, it's a story about, about private equity investing in uh, patent portfolio acquisition, they immediately jacked up prices to hospitals. So the hospitals, in order to regain bargaining leverage so that they could uh, retain a larger share, they merged to monopoly as well and turned around and put the screws to their insurers. And so the insurers were paying more for hospital care, although the hospitals were paying less for pharma, and so the insurers all consolidated out of self-defense. And so now we have two unorganized groups at either end of that chain. You have the healthcare workers at one end who are getting worse wages and worse working conditions than ever. And you have the patients at the other end who are paying more and getting worse medical outcomes than ever. And arguing about whether the hospital is in the right or the insurer is in the right or whether the pharma company is in the right will do nothing to help the doctors, the nurses, and the patients. And so we have to understand that we have common cause. And the good news is... We do have common cause, and not just with other creators, and not just with tech workers, and not just with publishing workers, who, after all, only have four companies to work for. So if you're made redundant from one of them, you're absolutely screwed. We also have common cause with everyone who wears eyeglasses in a world of monopolized eyeglasses, and everyone who drinks beer in a world of monopolized beer, and everyone who's a professional wrestling fan, and the wrestlers themselves who are dying of workplace-related injuries and denied insurance because they've been misclassified as contractors by their monopoly employer, and who are begging for money on GoFundMe so they can die with dignity in their 50s. We all have common cause. We all have solidarity. As Jamie Boyle says, this is like when we invented the word ecology, 
And instead of saying, well, you're worried about owls and I'm worried about the ozone layer and those aren't the same thing, we now understand that they're both part of one thing. We're really looking forward to this book coming out, aren't we? It's, yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, we yeah. met Thank up you. with Rebecca. Was it last year? Or oh, it was the year before? pre-pandemic. Oh, no, it was pre-pandemic. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When she was over in London, doing and the author's interest thing, and yeah, uh, you know. the work she's done on ebook licensing and stuff like that. Can I ask how's it? How's the book being published? Like, Traditional Beacon, distributed yeah. by Random House. Although I'll tell you what. So I mentioned there's only one book distributor left in America. There's uh, Ingram bought out Baker and Taylor. That's it. There are no other independent distributors. So Beacon distributes through Random House, their direct competitor, just like most small presses, because there really isn't anyone to shop around with. Random House, not, I think, out of any ideological commitment, just as a matter of scale, will not distribute a book, an ebook, without DRM, just because they have to go through and, and toggle the no DRM button on that book's record when they flow it into the CMSs for Amazon and Kobo and the rest. So we are having to self-publish the ebook with Beacon because Random House won't carry it because it's DRM free. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's trad, but it's also indie because we're not able to get our monopoly distributor to respect the creator's wishes here. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, I'd I'd like to talk, or well, we'd both like to talk to you a bit about, um, we have been banging on for some time about what we call copyright literacy, um, Mm -hmm. which is kind of, it's not that we want everybody to, you know, understand copyright law at all. It's that we think that understanding copyright actually is really quite fundamental, as we've been saying, to understanding all sorts of things like power and monopolies and, and how information gets around the world and gets published and things like that. But I think one of the things that we've realised is that it's quite difficult to get people actually interested in this as a subject. And we're also sometimes wondering whether one of the things that we're doing is saying, well, it's up to people to kind of educate themselves and understand more about this, whereas actually perhaps what we need is more on the platform regulation side of things so that things like these kind of automatic takedowns and things like that can't happen and so that copyright can't be used um, in the way you've described. Do you think there is merit in what we're trying to do to get people to to kind of start to, you know, understand a bit? Because it's not a sexy topic. It's not a topic people automatically think, oh, I need to learn about this. They just think it's boring, largely. Yeah, I'm of two minds here. And you You've laid out the two different cases pretty well. So I think that we focus over much on what copyright says and not enough on who it applies to. Every industrial regulation needs, before it actually has its own contour set for how it regulates, we have to say what it regulates, right? So like, imagine if there were some utopian future in which the UK actually had financial regulation. <laughs> I know that's a, that's a hard thing to imagine. But if we, but if if someday Singapore upon Thames decided to rein in its finance sector and stop being the global center for finance crime uh, down in the city uh, and in Scotland, uh, we and in the Channel Islands and and in the British Overseas Territories, we we might decide that you are a bank, or you are doing something bank-like that the Financial Conduct Office has a look into, that finance regulators will have something to say about, that the exchequer will get some notice of, if a transaction takes place involving a million pounds or more, 
and you know we might argue about whether the rules that follow from that one million pound transaction are good or bad but we would all agree that there's probably some threshold at which you're not a bank anymore right if you give your kid pocket money you're not a bank right uh, and so imagine then that due to some incredible miscalculation of the British establishment, something was done that caused the pound to crater, I don't know, like engaging in a trade war after abandoning the Northern Ireland pro protocol, say, which is, I know, a hypothetical we can't imagine. But imagine the pound craters and you have Weimar hyperinflation in, in the UK and suddenly going to Pratt costs a million pounds. Buying a sandwich at Pratt doesn't make you a banker. Not even if you buy it for someone else. And at that point, I think we would like to say we need a new test for whether you're a banker. Right? We need to take account of the fact that the, the thing that we reified as the proxy for whether you are engaged in industrial activity is no longer a good proxy. So we will find another proxy and we will, we will um, lean into that. So whether the copyright test is like are you making or handling copies of works right and copies of works used to be something that was reifiable you know if you if you had a book there was a printing press in its history if you had a movie there was a film lab if you had a phonogram there was a pressing plant and it's not true anymore like every click of the mouse makes a hundred copies you know you copy a thousand times before breakfast and it doesn't make you a record company to listen to music and it doesn't make you a publisher to read an ebook and what we've done is we've said that people who are engaged in normal non-industrial activity including industrial activity as i said earlier beyond the scope of the creative industries right people who are on dating sites are suddenly expected to become experts in copyright and there's two really important problems with that the first one is that it won't work because there are a bunch of people who who are just not capable of doing it right so like i wrote fanfic when i was a kid the first writing i ever did was after seeing star wars in 1977 when i came home and my you know i got the scrap paper from from my parents office and i folded it so it was uh you know magazine shapes with six by nine and stapled it up the side and then began writing out the star wars story over and over again like a kid practicing scales on the piano to try and figure out how it worked and you know, I'm laughing because I've done the same and I yeah. found it recently in my basement and I did the Fantastic. drawings and everything. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm speaking to you today from Burbank, California. I'm um, a mile from the gates of Disney. I'm a mile and a half from the gates of Warner and I'm two miles from the gates of Universal. And, you know, Universal has a, a really fantastic Harry Potter theme park in it. And someone at Universal picked up the phone and called someone at, at Warner and used copyright to negotiate the framework for that license, as well as trademark and so on, but copyright too, to negotiate the framework for that license. And they needed something fit for purpose, something highly technical, something very abstract, and something that was well-suited to managing a transaction that was ultimately going to regulate the flows of tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars worldwide, because now that park has been replicated in Singapore and in Orlando and so on. On my street, I know this because of trick-or-treaters, there are kids who are giant Harry Potter fans, and statistically, some of them are writing fanfic, right? And they're doing something absolutely normal, 
and where the way that I exposed my peers to my fanfic was by bringing it to school and showing it to them. The way they expose their peers to fanfic is by putting it on the internet somewhere and showing it to them. And, you know, let's stipulate the absolutely untrue thing that if they were to call up Warner's and say, I'm a 12-year-old who would like to speak to a lawyer about the terms on which I'm going to license Harry Potter, that someone would return their call. They are not capable, even a very smart 12-year-old is not capable of having the abstract, nuanced, technical discussion necessary to navigate the copyright license. And if we make it simple enough that a 12-year-old can understand it, then it will no longer be fit for purpose when I need it as someone who is actually in the entertainment industry and who is trying to figure out how to earn a living from copyright. And if we don't make it simple, then she will be on the wrong side of the law for doing a thing that is absolutely essential to the journey of a creator, right? Imagine if the you couldn't become a musician by playing familiar songs, right? This is the, like there is no musician on earth who became a musician, but that they became a musician by playing the familiar songs they love. That is how you become a musician. And so when we regulate this conduct, we either put everyone on the wrong side of the law or we make the law so simple that everyone can obey it. And neither of those is a good outcome. Mm. And so this is the problem with copyright literacy. Like, yeah, people who want to understand copyright should have an easy venue to doing it. And copyright's probably too complicated and could probably stand some some simplification. Just understanding, like, I look at Boylan and Jenkins' annual Public Domain Day post on January 1st every year where they talk about what works are going in the public domain, what works would go in the public domain, and just ascertaining the copyright status of a work is too complex. Not just because you have to know when it was created and whether it was, whether there's a registry and so on. You also have to, like, know, did this fall into this one period where copyright you know, durations look like this and later on they were extended, but only for works that fell into this category and so on. There's probably lots of ways we could just kind of go back and fix copyright and make it simpler and make it easier for people to understand too. But the idea that you have to understand copyright in order to move through the world is like the idea that you have to understand finance in order to provide pocket money to your kid. There's nothing wrong with understanding finance, right? We would be a better world and better equipped to sort false claims from true, especially about whether or not someone should have a guillotine built on their lawn for precipitating a financial crisis if we had more understanding of finance, not the financial literacy of like, you should stop eating avocado toast and then you'll be able to afford a garden flat, but actual financial literacy, like here's how they destroyed the world with complex financial derivatives. And this is why they shouldn't be trusted to run a lemonade stand. You know, that, that would be that would be a public good but not because you need it to use money right and i i think that you shouldn't need copyright literacy to do normal cultural things with copyrighted works to yeah. sing a song around a campfire it's just it's just nuts yeah i think just to say when where we're coming from it is about aligning this with ethical things about the creation and use of what is currently protected by copyright. Um, mm -hmm. we, we're always advocating for use of copyright exceptions as ways of having that flexibility in the law that should absolutely be used. But I think it's, it's a really good point that there's only so far you can 
go with this mm. if you've got a system which is broken and, as you say, puts people in the wrong category so that they have all the other stuff that comes with it, all of that complicated, nuanced industrial relations stuff. Um, so moving on, segueing into a conversation more about open, we're also aware that we, we always try to talk about openness and support the commons because it's uh, something that's a big part of our work. But we know that there are issues with copyright trolling and we wanted to pick up on your yeah. open letter to Kane Jones because we also have had, uh, I've had um, experiences of Pixie, the company that sends these letters to people saying you've used this f- um, photograph on your website. And these, in our case, it, these were Creative Commons ones. There's a particular artist that we know is creating large numbers of these images that are on Flickr under the Creative Commons uh, CCBY 2.0 license. So we had some conversations within our community and we were saying, here's how you can deal with these, make sure it's actually a valid claim. And we were very heartened to see your open letter. So can you talk to us a bit about what happened there? Sure. So the older Creative Commons licenses, sort of for the first 14 years or so, the CC1 through 3 licenses, had a pair of unfortunate, uh, or a single unfortunate line in them which was that they terminated on breach. And so it didn't really say what constituted a material breach. And the terms of the license required that license takers must name the artist, link to the original online, or somewhere else if the artist had stipulated that, name the license, give the license version, and link to the license online, and note whether the license had been modified. And honestly, like, nobody nobody knew right like nobody only a few weirdos like me paid close attention to that stuff mostly people would just write like cc cory doctoro or something and and just leave it at that and that's not great not because it violates the terms of the license but you know the point of this was to teach people about creative commons by getting to the bottom of an article and going oh wait this image was created by cory doctor i can go and get the high res and i can use it and here's a license that tells me how that's exciting i think that will let me make more use of the commons too i've now encountered the idea in the wild and i'll go off and spread it and so people didn't really comply with the license by and large there weren't good tools for automatically generating those attribution strings you had to do them manually and if you think about it it's like copying the name of the creator which is often on a web page you have to perfectly select it and it's in like a field where your cursor doesn't work and then getting the url of the page which might be quite a very long url and then getting the name of the license and also remembering to include the license version number. And you have to remember to note whether it's modified and you have to decide whether a modification is substantive or not. You know, is cropping modification? What about zooming? What about, you know, like there's just all of this kind of technicality that was hard for lay people to manage. And it didn't matter because everybody who was putting works up in Creative Commons was doing it to share. And so like, if it really bothered you, generally you just send an email to the person saying, hey, can you fix it? And mostly they would. And if they didn't, you'd just be like, eh, I put it up to share. Like, yeah, it could be better, but eh, it's fine. And then some uh, entrepreneurs, I use that term very loosely, uh, in the most pejorative sense, figured out that if licenses terminate on breach and if there are statutory damages available for copyright infringement, which is use without a license, and there are in the United States $150,000 per work, that if you could just get people to use your Creative Commons licensed works, statistically a large number of them would make mistakes 
in their attribution and you could send them invoices and threaten to sue them for $150,000 they didn't pay them. And so among the companies that did this is a company called Pixie that, uh, in my opinion, falsely bills itself as an artist protection service that helps artists track down uses of their works that are legitimately infringing, right? You've put up your work for, uh, um, well, for example, my wife once posted a photo that the Daily Mail asked her if they could use, and she said, no, you're terrible people, and they used it anyway, right? So that sort of infringing use right where where you've uh you have not given up your rights the user is unequivocally someone who who should have taken a license you either denied them the license or they never sought it they help you find it and they help you resolve the matter through a, an invoice and a threat and what their bread and butter in my opinion is is actually these creative commons copyleft trolling where they represent our creators like the one you mentioned i believe you're talking about marco vetch the german there are others in germany and vetch's racket is that he um he hires people on upwork at five dollars a photo or similar sums to take photos every day that are photo illustrations of cnn headlines of the day in the hopes that anyone who's writing about a story that's in the news will type into a search engine find me some freely usable uh, photo illustration that illustrates the themes out of this news story and they'll find it and then they'll make some small technical error and they'll come after them. And so, you know, they represent him, they're, they're a major uh, law firm for him and, and they have gotten him lots of money. There are other people, the person who came after me, I am told by an insider whistleblower was one of the people on Upwork that Vetch used to hire who went into business for himself uh, on the same racket represented by Pixie as well. And so Pixie sent me a notice threatening me for having used one of this guy's photos. But of course, I attributed it correctly. I'm, I'm like the one weirdo in the world who does, you know, correct attribution by hand every day, repeatedly attributed it at the top and the bottom and the alt text for the image all over the place. It had been correctly attributed. And so I wrote back and basically said, you know, as the former European director of Creative Commons and someone who helped create the Creative Commons licenses, who is very careful to use Creative Commons licenses well, and who has himself uploaded tens of thousands of Creative Commons licensed images, I am here to tell you some very good news, which is that your client has nothing to complain about because I have not in any way violated his licenses and you can go pound sand. And they wrote back and apologized, and I wrote back and asked for an explanation, and their explanation was, we made a mistake. And I said, that's not the explanation I want. I want to know, did an attorney review this legal threat before you sent it to me? Are you practicing baritry? Uh, where is that attorney licensed to practice? What are the laws regulating that attorney's conduct? How did you come to conclude that I live in Canada, something that hasn't been true in over 20 years? What did you do to do a background check on me to decide which jurisdiction to threaten me in and so on? And they just stonewalled me. And so I published on this and explained it. And also I asked for the names of the people who threatened me because they signed the legal threats with their first name. And, uh, you know, you two are in law. Legal correspondence is not a first name thing. No, right? when, no. when, a, when a solicitor who's admitted to the bar threatens someone with legal action, they sign it with their full name. And so I demanded to know their full names. They wouldn't provide that either. Now, both of them, there's only one person with their first name working at the company, according to LinkedIn. So I just figured out who they were. And I published an open letter 
Uh, and I published about this and I said, these two people threatened me, this, this person and then their boss threatened me. And I got a, an email from the CEO of Pixie threatening to sue me and also saying that the GDPR had been violated because I had revealed the identities of these people who had contacted me out of the blue to threaten me that this was a privacy violation. And so, you know, I contemplated what to do and I decided I'm just going to send this guy an open letter because this is rubbish. And so I wrote him an open letter saying like, as someone who testified during the passage of the GDPR, I'm not an expert per se, but I know enough about it to think that you're wrong. And just to be on the safe side, I asked a German solicitor who is an expert on the GDPR in Germany, where your employees are located, and you're just wrong. And moreover, you know, his email was like more in sorrow than in anger. Like, I just wish we could have a dialogue because I want to protect creators and you want to protect creators. And I, and it was, and I said, you know, dialogues are not uh, opened with threats, right? No. Like you, you, you no. have to stop threatening people to get what you want. That your whole business from the demand letters you send out to the way that you respond when you're called out for your demand letters involves threatening people. And you know, just some life advice. Stop threatening people. Just stop it, right? The world would be a better place if we didn't threaten each other as opening salvos in the resolution of our debates. And so, you know, this is this is the story of Pixie. The good news is that Flickr, uh, where Pixie posts their bait, uh, is updating the site to minimize and update those 2.0 licenses to to the new licenses, the 4.0 licenses, which are five, six years old now, and which have um, a cure provision where if someone is out of compliance with the license, you have to send them a demand letter, wait 30 days, and then you can threaten them. So it, it, it corrects this error, and it basically puts these people out of business. And Creative Commons has a good new attribution tool on its own search engine. There's an attribution tool coming for... Flickr, where you just click the mouse and you get an attribution string you can paste into your documents. And so there's lots of good stuff happening, partly as a result of this. And some of it was already in train when I made these complaints. And I think we'll put a lot of these people out of business. There's also been a couple of unfavorable precedents now against them, arguing that the statutory damages they're entitled to is zero, that they're entitled to some injunctive relief at best. And that's the thing they they specifically disclaim, you know, in their threats, they say, you can't just remove this image, you've already committed the crime, and now you have to pay, you know, and so that's going to fall apart as well, I think, as a result of good precedents. As is so often the case, the threats rely on some ambiguity in the law. And the people who make the threats really have a kind of choice of venue in that they can withdraw the threat when someone looks like they're going to fight and not have to go to court and get a precedent to resolve that ambiguity. And so they can just go after the people who lack the resources to fight them, and they can preserve this unlawful and unethical conduct. Mm. No, that's, we were, I say, we were really delighted, weren't we, yeah. actually seeing your open letter. It and was very helpful. Many people in our community had experienced it and were, you know, we were urging people not to pay out, not, it, to, it, not to do this. It made this, me feel you know? better about telling them to sod off as yeah. well. Because I thought, <laughs> no, that's definitely the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we're, we're conscious of time and we, yeah, we sure. are pretty much out of time. But yeah. one of the things we just wanted, just before we go, we're, I mean, we're, we're really excited in a couple of weeks. Um, you're going to be next week, actually. Next yes, week next week, week at the, yep. the ABC conference, the Canadian yeah. Library Copyright Conference. We're we're going to be speaking at that as well, so we're, we're excited about it. And you've you've spoken with librarians before, and I just wondered, you know, do you think librarians have this 
particular role to play here as as kind yeah. of you know people that that are, you know helping you know they used to be seen as gatekeepers but helping facilitate access to information and educating all sorts of users about things like copyright well so i'm a recovering library worker i'm a, a former page and, and cataloger and i'm a visiting professor of library science at unc and so i'm a i'm i'm a um a library stan and the thing about libraries in the context of copyright is that libraries are not just older than copyright. They are older than paper and publishing and printing and commerce. So they speak with a great deal of moral authority on the subject of information and information dissemination and organization. The other thing about librarians, notwithstanding the attacks, I think, that started under the coalition government in the UK and have been really ramped up here, especially in red states, on libraries as a kind of socialist institution that are that's a, a waste of money and sucking at the public tit, that, you know, nobody can really seriously accuse people of going into libraries because they want to get rich, right? Nobody, nobody com becomes a librarian in order to uh, realize their dreams of billions. It is a thing that people get into for public service and public service alone. And mm. so, th again, this gives libraries an enormous amount of moral weight. And so I, I, I think librarians have been on the back foot for a long time, like a lot of public institutions. They've been apologizing for their existence. I remember speaking at a library conference, I, I believe in Massachusetts, the annual state library conference there one year and the outgoing director was giving his farewell speech to the librarians there and and he said you know under austerity we have been doing more with less but it has reached the point where we have to do less with less and our role is being shrunk and i think librarians had a kind of turning point around then where they realized that apologizing for their existence and doing more with less was only going to get them steamrolled and that they had to stand up and actually assert the importance of libraries. I, I, I've said that, the, I forget where I read this, but getting rid of libraries because we have the internet is like getting rid of doctors because we have the plague. It's the librarian's need is, is, high, is stronger now than it's ever been. And of course, libraries are the last place in most cities and countries where you are welcome because you are a person and not because you have some money to spend. Where your right to be there is entirely about the fact that you are a person who is in that place. You don't even have to live there. Yeah. I mean, you are welcome in a library if you're visiting. You can go to another country and walk into their public library and they will treat you with all the respect and care and solicitude that they would treat someone who lived down the road. And it is the, the last shred of something that was once very common to our world, these public spaces for public interest. And they're the flame keepers of it. And so I think that they do have a lot to say right now. Mm. Well, we're really looking forward to what you've got to say thank you. at the ABC conference. And thank you so much for all your time. Do you, do you have a favorite cake? We always ask people at the end, do you have a we, we like copyright we have a tonics together. tea cake yeah we we would, if we were with yet. you we would be giving you some cake we've met people in right. person we bake them cakes anything i've been a low carber for 20 some oh. years so a cake that's not very sweet okay. is my favorite cake um a, a, a carrot made into the shape of a cake oh you know <laughs> i do i love um carrot cake i really do love oh there we go cake, especially okay. with not much sugar and a yeah. lot of ginger and I yeah. made some uh, at, during the lockdown with um, anise extract, 
licorice mm. extract. Oh, so I made a licorice ginger carrot cake with almost no sweetener, and it was superb. I made it with almond flour. It was so good. Low carb. Amazing. If you can send us the recipe, Corey. I just <laughs> took a carrot cake recipe, and I subbed in almond flour and then put in a bunch of grated ginger and uh, and and a licorice extract. Anise You're going to have to experiment. I'm, I'm going to have to, yeah. I have to yeah. give it a go, definitely. Yeah. We're, we're going we're gonna to let you go, but thank you so right. much for your thank time. You. Really Lovely appreciate to chat. it. Yeah. yeah, really. Loads. Look forward to next week's keynote as well. All right. Yeah. Thank you. So, yeah, I'll see you virtually in, in uh, Ontario. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Bye Thanks bye. a lot. Thank bye. you. Bye. So there we have it. Corey Doctorow's favorite cake is a low carb, low sugar carrot cake with almond flour, ginger and anise extract. I think I'm just going to eat a carrot. I'll be honest. You, you think so? Yeah. 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 I think after this, there's going to be uh, waffle easters in their droves flooding into their local shops to, to get those ingredients. Absolutely. I, I do fancy giving it a go. Right. Um, you give it a go. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Fair enough. Um, so thank you again to Corey for finding time in his busy schedule to speak to us. He was just about to give a keynote um, in Ontario at the ABC conference when we caught up with him then. Um, when we caught up with him two weeks ago, he was giving a keynote at the uh, Create conference in Glasgow. He is a busy man. And I think he basically he's got like five books on the go at any one time. He's clearly someone who has an awful lot of projects on the go. He is incredibly prolific. And again, we are so grateful for him finding time in that to, to speak to us um, and to give us some of his insights. So Absolutely, we are. There yes. we are. So thanks very much for staying to the end of this podcast. And we have other podcasts in this the is, bank waiting to be edited. This and is so the bit where we, can... we make it clear why this is called Copyright Waffle, because we are now just waffling, aren't we? We are, we are just waffling. Uh, but yes, it, it, it can be quite time-consuming, can't it, to quite, edit quite, podcasts? Up, up, up. So it, it can be can, quite time-consuming. It can be. Uh, it's good and, job I've uh, learned how to do it now. It's a good job you've learned how to do all the editing. Oh, yeah. I've saved Otherwise, you hours, haven't I, now? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so, so we'll see how that works. The next one will just be lots of <laughs> random disjointed statements. Probably, probably. Cutting across each other. Absolutely. Uh, okay, let's send them home with a bit of the old copyright waffle. All right. All right.